Hey, I'm Noam Weissman, and you're listening to Unpacking Israeli History, the podcast that takes a deep dive into some of the most intense, historically fascinating, and often misunderstood events and stories linked to Israeli history. This is actually the last episode of season one. Kind of hard to say goodbye, which is actually super relevant to today's content. Yalla, let's get into it. We, the people of Israel, are prepared and anxious to meet the representatives of our neighbors without any preconditions. There are people in Israel and elsewhere say it's impossible to make peace between the Arabs and Israel or the Jewish people. I think they're wrong. Every Jew has seen heart-wrenching images of Jewish families with yellow stars being dragged out of their homes to an unknown future. In most cases, this imagery would lead people to think about the Holocaust, the most horrific atrocity to face the Jewish people in which one third of world Jewry was lost. Yet this image appeared once again only 15 years ago in the summer of 2005 in an entirely different context, when some Jewish residents of Gush Katif in the Gaza Strip adorned these stars in protest to the Jewish state's decision to remove Jewish settlers from this area. To be short, The choice to wear stars was denounced across the Jewish world. Yad Vashem director Avner Shalev was taken aback when seeing this, saying, it is important that the memory of the Shoah, that's the Hebrew word for the Holocaust, remain a unifying factor in Israeli society, not the opposite. Meanwhile, across the ocean, Abraham Foxman, who was the head of the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, at the time was equally unnerved. Here's what he said. The residents of Gush Katif are sending an appalling and misguided message to the people of Israel. I take no issue with what Shalev and Foxman said, but having spent much of 2003 to 2006 in Israel and looking back 15 years later, I wanna ask, what provoked these residents to go this far? In this episode of Unpacking Israeli History, the very last one of the season, we're gonna delve into Israel's disengagement from the Gaza Strip. We'll look at the historical context, the political and religious debate leading up to the evacuation, the trauma it caused for Israelis, the questions it provoked for the Palestinians, and what it means for the future of Israel. The questions I want to explore today are, what was the rationale behind Israel's disengagement from Gaza? Did it ultimately not work? And what do we need to internalize 15 years later? Before we learn why Israel decided to leave the Gaza Strip, the tiny 25-mile-long region on Israel's southern border, let's find out how Israel got there in the first place. Jewish history in Gaza goes way back, all the way back to biblical times. In fact, Jewish patriarchs Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah lived in the Gerar area of Gaza. The region also makes appearances in the story of Samson and was also known to have been conquered by the Hasmoneans. In the 4th century, Gaza was the main Jewish port to the land of Israel for commerce and trade. Jews basically lived there throughout the centuries. Fast forward a long time to the day the United Nations voted there should be a Jewish state. On November 29, 1947, the UN declared there should be a Jewish and Arab state. At Flushing, Long Island, the General Assembly of the United Nations has made its decision on Palestine. The resolution of the Duck Committee for Palestine was adopted by 33 votes, 13 against, 10 abstentions. 
The Arab states were less than thrilled about this, waged war on Israel, and lost. It's obviously much more complex than that, but we'll leave it there for now. After Israel's War of Independence and what the Palestinians refer to as the Nakba, or the catastrophe, Gaza came under the control of Egypt. It wasn't until the summer of 1967 that Israel took control of the Gaza Strip, following what is commonly known as the Six-Day War, and what Palestinians call the Naksa, or the setback. Israeli forces control practically the entire eastern shore of the Suez Canal. They have the Gaza Strip, and to the east of Israel, they have overrun the Jordanian bulge right to the shore of the Jordan River, including, of course, the old city of Jerusalem. An astounding military feat, and one that even the Pentagon views with admiration. Over the years, many Israelis started to move to the different areas that were conquered or liberated or whatever word you want, including eastern parts of Jerusalem, the West Bank, a.k.a. Judea and Samaria, Gaza, the Golan Heights, and the Sinai. The people who move to these areas are often referred to as settlers. But settlers come in all shapes and sizes. There are secular settlers, religious settlers, black, brown, and white settlers. Nothing monolithic about this group. You gotta check out our series on settlements on YouTube. Anyway, though eventually Israel officially annexed or applied sovereignty over all of Jerusalem in 1980, it stated its willingness to hand over control of some of the other regions to Arabs in exchange for an end to hostilities and peace agreements a concept that came to be known as land for peace. Until then, Israel would retain control, a situation that largely remains until today. In 1979, this idea of land for peace started to take form. Egypt, the most powerful Arab nation and Israel's most threatening enemy, actually made peace with Israel in exchange for Israel returning the Sinai to the Egyptians. Today we celebrate a victory, not of a bloody military campaign, but of an inspiring peace campaign. Peace has come to Israel and to Egypt. Israel made the difficult move of uprooting its settlements in Sinai in a tense and emotionally charged atmosphere. There was a famous town there called Yamit, which was apparently gorgeous. I was born after it was evacuated, so I never got to experience it firsthand. But my parents told me that they used to love visiting it when they were in college. The evacuation of Yamit was only a taste of what would come two decades later during Israel's evacuation of Gaza, which is to the northwest of Sinai. Over the years since 1967, Israel built several bustling Jewish towns and kibbutzim in the Gaza Strip that became home to upwards of 9,000 Israeli Jews. Over the years, there were many more conversations about this idea that I was talking about of land for peace, highlighted by the Oslo Accords in the 90s, but in what feels like a last-ditch effort before his second term ran out, President Bill Clinton hosted then-Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak with Palestinian Authority Chairman Yasser Arafat at the 2000 Camp David Summit, during which Arafat was presented with an unprecedented offer. Arafat walked away stunning President Clinton. Now, there are many different perspectives and claims on what exactly happened there. But for the purpose of this episode, which is focused on Gush Katif, I just want to quote the president himself, who said years later, I killed myself to give the Palestinians a state. I had a deal they turned down that would have given them all of Gaza, wait, wait, all of Gaza between 96 and 97% of the West Bank, compensating land in Israel, you name it. With the breakdown of Camp David, 
The violence of the Second Intifada erupted in September of 2000. Check out our last episode on the Second Intifada to hear more about that. What you might remember from that episode is that many Israelis became disillusioned about the prospects for peace, and the country moved to the right as they elected a far more right-wing government than before. What a convincing victory in elections today is Likud party captured 36 out of 120 seats in parliament based on exit polls. The opposition Labor Party won just 18 seats, its worst showing ever. Today's voting went forward amid continuing violence. At least four Palestinians were reportedly killed in clashes. With this new government forces. was headed by former military officer Ariel Sharon, who was known as a champion of the settlements. You'll see very soon why this becomes quite ironic. Now, after five years of relentless suicide bombings during the Second Intifada and the election of a military hawk in Ariel Sharon, you'd think that the new government would have dealt with the Palestinians with an iron fist. Yet, in December of 2003, Sharon made what can only be described as an astounding announcement, declaring his plans to unilaterally withdraw 100% of Israeli military forces and civilians from Gaza. I am convinced from the bottom of my heart that this disengagement will strengthen Israel and its hold on the territory vital for our existence. Withdrawal from territory, really any territory, was something he had always campaigned against. People could not believe it. It was almost too shocking to be true. To accomplish this, Sharon formed a coalition with a left-wing opposition led by Shimon Peres of the Labour Party in order to pass a plan calling for the complete withdrawal of all Israeli settlers and forces from the Gaza Strip and four settlements in northern Samaria, otherwise known as the Northern West Bank, by the summer of 2005. Just so we understand, and I want to paint an accurate picture for you, the towns and kibbutzim in Gaza, which were collectively referred to as Gush Katif, were not some small tent cities. Gush Katif in the south of Gaza was a block of 17 or so towns populated by 8,800 Jews in fully built communities with roads, infrastructure, industry, even state-of-the-art greenhouses, much of which had been there for decades. Saying that the debate within Israeli politics leading up to the disengagement was heated could be a massive understatement. I was in Israel at the time studying in yeshiva in a suburb just outside Jerusalem called Mivaseret. When I and my peers heard of the plans to disengage, what in Israel was called the Hitnakut, we could not believe this could be true. And I remember taking like three buses to get to Gush Katif and protest it, of course, peacefully. Was I right to protest this or not? I'll let you make up your own mind. In Israel, everyone seemed to have an opinion on the disengagement. And as is the Israeli way, Everyone felt comfortable sharing their opinion. The Knesset was pretty much divided by ideological and religious lines. Sharon and his supporters made the argument that the Israelis living in Gaza were outnumbered by Palestinians more than 170 to 1. There were over a million Palestinians surrounding the 8,800 Jews. And in the five years of the Second Intifada, 124 Israelis had been killed by Palestinians in the Strip. They believed the cost of maintaining a force of thousands of soldiers in Gaza to protect a relatively small Jewish population just no longer made sense. In Sharon's own words, he said, the purpose of the disengagement plan is to reduce terror as much as possible and grant Israeli citizens the maximum level of security. The process of disengagement will lead to an improvement in the quality of life and will help strengthen the Israeli economy. The disengagement plan is meant to grant maximum security and minimize friction between Israelis and Palestinians. 
Many to the left of Sharon and the political spectrum viewed the settlements themselves as an obstacle to peace as they prevented the establishment of a future Palestinian state. And just the optics of protecting 8,800 Jewish settlers surrounded by 1 million Palestinians was also problematic for them. On the other side of the political divide, there were a variety of arguments against the disengagement. Within his own party, the famous Bibi Netanyahu, I believe he needs no introduction considering he has been the prime minister over over a decade, publicly chided Sharon for this decision, which he believed would put Israeli lives in peril. I, I cannot be a partner to a move that I think compromises the security of Israel, tears the people apart, and enshrines the principle of withdrawal to the indefensible 67 lines, and uh, I think in the future we'll also risk the unity of Jerusalem. Many argued that the settlements in Gaza acted as a buffer to Palestinian aggression, warning that without them, Gaza could turn into a breeding pool for terror and a launching pad for attacks against all of Israel. The disengagement in their view also was a violation of Jewish values and that it would uproot Jewish settlement in the land of Israel. Some feared that dismantling the settlements in Gush Katif would lead to the eventual dismantling of more and more settlements in other parts of the land of Israel, giving up on the dream of what is called Greater Israel. Ultimately, the strongest argument against the disengagement was that of security. The disengagement was seen by many as a surrender to Palestinian terrorism who would only step up their terror after their withdrawal. In Gaza, Hamas helped prove Netanyahu and others right when in 2004, Hamas fired 882 mortar shells and 276 Qassam rockets at Israel. The process of passing the disengagement law was no easy task and was marked by weeks of opposition and major public demonstrations by settlers and their supporters against the very concept of disengagement. The protests reflected the understandable hesitancy of people to leave their homes, many who moved to the area as pioneers with the encouragement of the government and were now leaving as grandparents. In one protest called the Human Shame, and you gotta imagine this, tens of thousands of Israelis held hands for almost 60 miles connecting Gaza to the Kotel, the Western Wall in Jerusalem. Naturally, there were counter-demonstrations by supporters of the disengagement plan. Although opinion polls showed that the majority of the country, approximately 70%, was in favor of the plan, a formal referendum was never called for by Sharon, which angered many. In the months leading up to the withdrawal, the country was virtually split in two. Sharon's supporters, needless to say, felt betrayed considering he ran on a platform promising not to leave Gaza. Those opposing withdrawal tied orange ribbons to their cars and backpacks, while those in favor used blue ones. Objections from the orange side cried, Yehudi lo migaresh Yehudi, a Jew does not expel a Jew, continually referencing painful imagery from Jewish history of Jews being expelled from their homes by countries sworn to the destruction of the Jewish people. The opinions were passionate on both sides and there was serious tension between the two camps. Removing almost 9,000 civilians from their homes was as complex as it was heartbreaking. There had been a serious concern that some IDF soldiers might even disobey their orders to carry out the evacuation and that heavy violence would ensue between the residents and soldiers. Many rabbis, including Rabbi Avram Shapira, the head of the yeshiva of Yeshivat Merkaz Harav, was on one side of the debate, strongly urging soldiers 
to disobey orders. Other major leaders of the religious Zionist community, such as Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein and Rabbi Avadia Yosef, saw it differently. And while not being huge fans of the disengagement, they instructed soldiers not to disobey orders. Without getting overly Talmudic here, indeed, Rabbi Shapira ruled that soldiers were obligated to obey orders to evacuate Yamit some 23 years prior, since some rabbis permit exchanging land for peace, assuming there will be genuine peace. The difference for Rabbi Shapira now was explained by Rabbi Chaim Jachter seems to be the planning on behalf of the evacuees. The residents of Yamit were generously compensated for their homes and successfully relocated elsewhere in the land of Israel. However, there was not a clear, formulated plan for relocating the evacuated residents of the Gaza Strip. Shapira's argument was that you can't evacuate a group of people from their homes without a proper plan for relocation. But ultimately, the soldiers followed command. There are many stories of soldiers crying with the residents as they removed them from their homes, and some soldiers simply prayed together with their brothers and sisters. Gush Katif residents felt betrayed by their country. Many spent their final hours in the area praying and crying in the beautiful synagogues in the community. And like I mentioned at the outset, some residents even went so far as to wear Stars of David to emphasize the way they felt about the actions of the Israeli government as they chanted, Yehudi lo megarash Yehudi, a Jew doesn't expel another Jew. As I mentioned at the outset, this sparked outrage from much of the Jewish community across the globe, feeling like donning a yellow star was just going too far. The almost 9,000 residents of Gush Katif had been promised new homes and compensation, but unfortunately, due to government bureaucracy, there were some instances in which many of the Gush Katif residents became refugees living in their own country, unable to find employment or having a home to call their own. A third of all of the residents remained in the situation of limbo until 2016, when they were finally given permanent housing, and the scars continue to remain. So where does this leave us? I spoke about why the disengagement happened, the arguments for and against it, and that it did ultimately take place. But how did Palestinians feel about the disengagement? They surely appreciated this, right? Not so fast. Israel cannot be allowed to continue with its unilateral policies and unilateral steps. Uh, we believe that uh, a state with provisional borders would spell trouble for the Palestinian people and their political future. Sari Nusaibe, someone I've quoted from often and former president of Al-Quds University, had a different view on Sharon's decision. He explained it this way. Sharon's unilateralism immortalized mistrust and suspicion and so guaranteed the low level of violence needed to preclude negotiations. By clearing out settlers from Gaza, a classic red herring, he could divert international attention while he cut the West Bank to pieces. Is there something to what Nusaibe is saying? Was this a political chess move by Sharon? Dove Weissglass, a close advisor to Sharon, said something interesting about the very purpose of the disengagement. Here's what he said. The disengagement is actually formaldehyde. It supplies the amount of formaldehyde that is necessary so there will not be a political process with the Palestinians. The significance is the freezing of the political process. And when you freeze that process, you prevent the establishment of a Palestinian state, and you prevent a discussion on the refugees, the borders, and Jerusalem. Effectively, this whole package called the Palestinian state, with all that it entails, has been removed indefinitely from our agenda. Nusaiba goes further. The predictable clashes between Hamas and Fatah, not to mention the occasional Qasem rocket fired over the wall, 
would prove to the world what sort of unruly neighbors the democratic Israelis had to live around. Meanwhile, more Palestinian land in the West Bank would be massively populated with Israelis. The key to this plan, of course, was that there would be no dialogue, no trust, and no negotiations between the two sides. As we saw, there are many different perspectives on the thinking behind the disengagement, and it's critical to hear one Palestinian view on it. But beyond the politics, did it work? Was it a good move? Let's be honest. Most people who have read or watched the news coming out of Israel over the last 15 years would probably argue that the disengagement, well, may be necessary in many ways, at least in regards to security, was a dismal failure. Only four months after the Israeli military, the IDF locked the border fence and called it a day for the last time. Hamas, the Islamist, rabidly anti-Semitic terrorist group, was elected to power. Since Fatah, the political party that had dominated Palestinian politics for the entirety of their history, wasn't so eager to hand over the reins, a civil war broke out in Gaza, during which Hamas militants executed Fatah supporters and around 600 Palestinians were killed from early 2006 to mid-2007 from Palestinian infighting within the Strip. Once Hamas took control over the Strip, Instead of building up the economy and infrastructure and providing for Palestinians' daily needs, the Hamas leadership uses its resources to wage war on Israel. Since that time, hundreds of millions of dollars in humanitarian aid and supplies were used to launch thousands of rocket attacks at civilian population centers in Israel. Materials were repurposed to construct miles of underground tunnels in order to infiltrate Israel and conduct terror attacks, abductions, and smuggle weapons. A generation of children in southern Israel were raised to have a Pavlovian reaction to the sound of a siren. It means that they have 15 to 30 seconds to find shelter. The continuous terrorism and rocket attacks provoked Israeli military retaliation time and again. Israelis and Palestinians were forced to endure three consecutive wars in Gaza between 2008 and 2014, resulting in too much death and destruction. The aggression also led Israel to enforce strict borders, both on land and sea, to prevent further terrorist activity and Israeli civilian casualties. A few years later, Egypt enforced strict borders with Gaza on their end as well. In Gaza now, there is a terribly performing economy and an awful unemployment rate. Hamas's misappropriation of financial aid towards the building of weapons and tunnels doesn't help the economic situation either. With all these factors in play, peace between Israel and Gaza seems to be less and less of a possibility. So what was the return on investment? Did Ariel Sharon achieve his goal? Not so sure. Did Israel succeed in reducing animosity, breaking through boycotts and acquiring more international support through the move? Not so much. Many argue that the disengagement did not benefit Israel and also did not benefit the Palestinians who are now living under Hamas rule with a divided Palestinian authority. Before we wrap up this season of Unpacking Israeli History, here are your five fast facts about Israel's disengagement from Gaza. Number one, in the summer of 2005, Israel unilaterally evacuated all of its citizens and troops from the Gaza Strip. Number two, soon after Israel's evacuation, Hamas was elected to power and a Palestinian civil war broke out in Gaza between Hamas and Fatah. Number three, since Israel's withdrawal from the Strip, there have been three wars between Israel and Hamas in 2008, 
2011, and 2014 in response to rocket attacks and the building of terror tunnels. Number four, a third of the settlers to evacuate Gush Katif did not receive permanent housing until 2016. Number five, although Israel evacuated Gaza, Israel and Egypt still controlled the land and sea borders of the Strip, which the Palestinians refer to as a blockade. Those are the facts, but here's one enduring lesson as I see it. Yes, there was tremendous tension in Israeli society. There were debates, disagreements, and differences of worldviews. And yes, there was resistance to the disengagement. But you know what? Notwithstanding the pain of this day, notwithstanding the fact that for many Israelis, the summer of 2005 is the most painful one to think about. This day and this process was a proud one for Israelis. Israel is a young democracy. Israel was born in 1948, less than 75 years old. There has been one constant in Israeli society. No matter the divisions, when the people need to come together, they do. Think back on our episode about the Atalena in 1948. Consider the evacuation of Yemi in 1982. And now think about Gush Katif in 2005. No matter what, the Israeli people have proved to the world, and most importantly to each other, that they will not allow ideology to be their defining character trait. Rather, there is a constant yearning to follow in the footsteps of the psalmist, who declared, Hine matov umanaim shevet achim gamyachan. Behold how good and how pleasant for brothers, for people, to sit together in unity. And that brings us to the end of this first season of Unpacking Israeli History. Thank you so much for tuning in, and make sure to check out the episodes you may have missed. We've covered some of the most interesting and intense moments in Israeli history, explored many conflicting opinions, political leanings, wars, elections, and more. As I mentioned in the first episode, my hope for this podcast is that we can all have the chance to explore the nuances of Israeli history to really get to know the stories, including the confusing gray areas. As an educator, I really believe that taking a nuanced approach to history can help us think about current events in a more honest way as well, shaping how we view the world around us. Thanks for tuning in. With that, thanks for listening to an episode of Unpacking Israeli History. This episode was the last of the season, but we have big plans for future seasons, so be sure to subscribe, rate us, or share with a friend. This podcast comes from Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. I'm your host, Noam Weissman. Our producer is Rachel Kastner. Research and writing by Avi Posen. Additional research and writing by Akiva Potok, Yitz Brilliant, Alicia Stein, Benjamin Elterman, Oren Peleg, and Ellie Lichstein. Edited by Baruch Goldberg. Unpacking Israeli History is generously sponsored by Larry and Andre Gill. Thanks for listening.